Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Vinny Damapolito. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Elizabeth E.P. Press spoke with Mayor Carmela Mantello about her first five weeks in office. Then, Hunter Wallace of the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley discusses the resources needed for Troy's people dealing with houselessness. Later on, we have part one of Willie Terry's interview with Sean Collins, Troy Area Labor Council President and Labor Organizer for Service Employees International Union. After that, in a piece from the archive, Isabella Laforte chatted with Grannies for Peace. And finally, Marshall Hildreth interviewed owner and operator Rachel Ann of the Capital Region's first ever cat cafe, the Pretty Paw Lounge. But first, here are the headlines. On February 14th, Landmark Theaters announced that it will be closing the Landmark Spectrum 8 theaters in Albany as of February 22nd. However, Keith Picard, one of the founders of the then-independent Spectrum Theater in 1983, said that negotiations have started with potential operators, and he hopes the venue will open under new management shortly after Landmark drops their lease. The Times Union reports that Albany County Democratic uh, Party has opted not to support David Soares in his bid for re-election as county district attorney. Soares, who has been uh, the county DA for 11 years, came under attack recently after awarding himself $23,000 a $23, bonus from state grants. He has announced he will return the money, but concerns about if his actions in awarding the bonus were even legal remain. Meanwhile, in Saratoga County, Matthew Caseo, a candidate for county court judge, while serving as the law clerk with Supreme Court Justice Diane Freestone, disclosed to the Saratoga County Republican Committee that the judge will issue a decision in favor of the Republicans in an ongoing challenge of handling of absentee ballots. After this information was reported online by the Times Union, Caseo withdrew his candidacy for judge. In other news, an investigation of Prime Capital Ventures, an Albany commercial lending firm, shows that $52 million of client funds is missing, apparently as part of a Ponzi-style uh, scheme. Earlier, the FBI had raided the home of Chris uh, Roglieri, uh, <laughs> CEO of Prime Capital Ventures. For people who travel to the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina area, you now will have another option with Av... Avilo Airlines, which has announced that they will offer direct nonstop flights between Albany Airport to Raleigh and Durham starting in May. U.S. Senator Christian Gillibrand demanded that the Environmental Protection Agency take additional action to clean up uh, polychlorinated uh, biphenyl, or PCBs, forever chemicals in the Hudson River and to render a non-productive or non-protective determination in its third uh, five-year review of the Hudson River PCBs, Superfund site cleanup. Quote, without effective action, the health risks and impacts of those relying on the 200-mile-long Hudson River PCBs Superfund site will persist for generations, says Riverkeeper President Tracy Brown. And that's it for headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. 
To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or give us a call at 518-272-2390. Troy Mayer Carmela Mantello spoke with Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Elizabeth E.P. Press about her first five weeks in office. She touched on garbage, traffic, housing, the quality of life task force, the emergency declaration she put forth to fill the empty comptroller position, and more. Today, we are joined on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine by Mayor Montello to discuss her first month plus in office. Mayor Montello, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine or welcome back to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for inviting me, and you know, it's been a whirlwind of five weeks, huh? That's exactly true. A whirlwind. You have been busy taking on things like removing the sauce of roundabout bulk garbage drop-off at the Alamo, creating the quality of life task force, just to name a few, lots of physical cleanup. Where does the money come from for all this extra work? Can you keep that up financially with the city? And what else do you have in store for the quality of life task force? The good news for folks is uh, it's utilizing existing resources. So it, it's ironic that you you mention money because a couple of people I've been out and about with the crews and, you know, we've been literally getting right down to the pavement, cleaning, sweeping, you know, blocks upon blocks and really taking Burke, North Central and South Troy specifically. We're going to hit the east side and sick away. A couple of folks have come out, EP, and they've asked, you know, Carmilla, how are you doing this? And why wasn't it done before? And, you know, I talked about it for my eight years as council president. I oversaw the Canal Corporation, 500 employees, 524 miles of network waterway. And I was able to see firsthand how to really utilize your existing staff and really think out of the box. It hasn't costed a dime more for the taxpayers, but we're essentially really just re-energizing our workforce, boosting our morale. The employees have stepped up incredibly. I cannot say enough about them. You know, from DPU with the traffic circle, as you mentioned, and, you know, that was just City Hall basically given the you know what, the finger to the residents, because from day one, the residents knew that that was not a good option. However, City Hall didn't listen to the residents and myself, $120,000 that traffic circle costs. It costs $0 to take it out. But the fact was, it became more of a public safety hindrance than a public safety correction. So there were several accidents on Sauce and 15th. You know, I said from day one, folks are paying taxes and fees up here. And my job is to get services, which are down here right now, back up to where their taxes and fees, they actually see real results. And, you know, if there's less popular places where residents think are dangerous, like the sauce of roundabout. What is the best way to get those areas to City Hall's attention? So I'm super accessible. Folks can contact me 
either through email. Um, our staff now, they're super accessible. They can contact the deputy mayor, our head of streets. But stating that there are other areas that, you know, do require just thinking differently in terms of public safety. I actually had a phone call with President Marty. He likes to be called Marty up at RPI. And Burdett is a real concern with the students walking. So I actually am having traffic go up there. They're going to put a little more signage. So we are going to look at potentially putting some type of island in the middle of Burdett. I would love to spend more time on traffic, but I should push on for a few other issues. You put forward an emergency declaration to fill the empty controller position. The council minority says that this is to avoid competitive bidding and council oversight. Can you just talk about the plan to fill this position and why there was an emergency declaration to do so? It is unfortunate that the council president chose that route because we actually had a meeting. I informed everyone, even before day one, you know, when Andy resigned, I actually asked Andy, what do you do January, February, March? Andy's the comptroller. He said, we closed the books to 2023. He said, there's not a ton to do because think about it, you're just beginning in all the 2023 numbers, whether it be sales tax, fines and violations, levy on your taxes, et cetera. That's all closed. We have a number of reports to file with the comptroller, our ARPA monies reporting. So he resigned literally three weeks before January 1st, but his last day was days before January 1st. I couldn't fill that position until I took office, obviously. To find a comptroller, we are very fortunate. We actually offered another municipal head of budget in a certain department. I can't reveal it yet, but he did give notice to his municipality. But I had stated from day one, we're going to go on two tracks here. We're going to hire a firm, and we talked to various firms, and uh, this particular firm, ProNexus, actually does this for other municipalities, and at the same time, seek a comptroller. So we've done both. I declared the emergency to get ProNexus in the door. The person is actually in the office as we speak. And so the council president knew that whether she related to the minority, you know, I'm not sure, the council majority, but the transition team knew it was very public that we were going to go on two tracks. The prior comptroller, Andy, actually thought that this was a good path, too. And the reason we declared an emergency, they did the same thing when Andy actually had left early last year to go to Shenandoah. This is um, something that's been done before. We now have ProNexus on. We're not going to take steps backwards with our reporting. And we're really fortunate because I've only been here four weeks, and we now have a comptroller starting within the next week and a half. Well, thank you, Mayor, for going into that a little bit. There has been a lot of struggle with people to find housing, to keep housing. Over the years, there have been proposals like good cause eviction legislation in New York. The council minority also recently expressed interest in establishing a community-based housing task force to address issues like skyrocketing rent. And I'm wondering where 
you are going to put your energy in terms of our housing problems in Troy and addressing affordable housing. A couple fronts, you know, first and foremost, our code department, I'm talking a good 10 years, EB has not been up to par and I'm putting that very nicely. Um, so we did hire a full-time engineer. You've already seen a number of buildings, whether they're buildings that can be uh, reused. Uh, for instance, down Berg just last week, a Red X building, the back of the building um, was leaning against a neighbor's house for several years. We held the landlord accountable. Landlord took the back part which could have happened years ago, but didn't. And then the front part, he's now going to restore, renovate, and then rent out. So our code is first and foremost, and we're literally overhauling code as we speak. Our landlord registry has not been kept up to date for six years, if not longer. Um, so we have one person in code literally starting from scratch and updating the landlord registry. Additionally, I do plan to sign a pro-housing letter and send that to the governor and the uh, Division of Housing and Community Renewal Commissioner. As you know, the governor has outlined several different plans toward housing and essentially, if we want to be open to various grants, which we do have DRI and other state grants, we need to essentially also be a partner in that process. Additionally, the housing task force, I have looked at that. I must tell you, that's a study. And quite frankly, City of Hudson did do it. And I did look at their study. It was very intense. Uh, it did cost tens of thousands of dollars from what I understand, we're going to take action. We don't need a study right now, 60 pages long. We're going to take action. We're, as you know, implement our quality of life action task force, which is all about not just clean air streets and um, addressing public safety issues. It's also a lot about our code. I do plan to look at a residential occupancy permit program. So we have a number of things in the works. And quite frankly, I'm not inclined to uh, spend tens of thousands of dollars right now on a study. Regarding our encampments, things like that, we have escalated our team and our partnership with Joseph's House. I actually just met with Joseph's House on another issue. We're part of a consortium with Schenectady uh, and Colony for housing. And we actually are talking to Joseph's house about trying to find a foreclosed house in the city of Troy or something the land bank owns for family shelter. These would actually be units and we're looking at various uh, buildings in the city of Troy for a partnership with Joseph's house. So it's our job to find the services, find the resources for these folks. It's it's our job to try to at least get these folks um, to capitalize on government services. And, and that encampment on the RPI land at Prospect Park, I can tell you, AP, it was just absolutely horrible. And I know folks were saying that's terrible taking an encampment. I would not allow my dog or an animal to live what they were living in. They deserve better. They deserve a shower, a bed, 
uh, a toilet, and we're going to provide that to them. And two folks, you should know, who did not capitalize on services and denied services during the summer now are with Joseph's house. We had a win, and that's what we're, me at least, that's what I'm geared toward, action. Mm. Well, I'm glad to hear that you had a meeting with Joseph's house post that encampment breakup. I think there was a concern from the community about how much time and notice folks got, even even if it's horrible living conditions, it was their home. So I'm wondering if there is this sort of processing that takes place on the administrations and when obviously you see it as a win, but are there lessons to be learned from how the city is going about some of these actions? Well, first and foremost, the the time uh, was extended twice. So there was not a quick turnaround on this. Folks literally um, were given a couple weeks before uh, the encampment started to be broken down. Nipi, you should know when I was on site, I must tell you, I've never um, been involved in a process like that. Joseph's house, they were incredible. They were patient. They just were so compassionate. And for me to see that process in action was, you know, truly an eye-opening experience for me. You know, one, one of the folks that were living up there was a hoarder. And we even, we gave them another week because they didn't want to leave. I get it. But at the same time, we couldn't allow what was happening up there. They were using propane tanks as heat. There were public safety issues. But but saying that, we can always do things better. One of the things, um, you know, that Amy from Joseph's house did say, um, unfortunately, the press got wind of uh, the encampment breakdown and there were a couple channels up there and they were concerned about that the the good news the press did work with us and didn't film any of the folks and you know but obviously it's out in the public so we couldn't um, stop that but saying that there you know we do plan to continue meeting continue talking and at the end of the day we're going to continue with our, you know, proactiveness, we're going to continue working together. Mayor, I just wanted to wrap up with you have the state of the city coming up in a couple of weeks on February 21st. Is there anything that we didn't touch on today related to the state of the city that you want to make sure our audience knows? Absolutely. Um, you probably saw our water plant you know, we were the envy of the capital region uh, that was, you know, touted as one of the top five water plants in the country. Um, the lead replacement line, you'll hear some discussion about that. But we plan, we have $5 million. We are going to upgrade our water plant. Safe drinking water is, you know, first and foremost, right next to police fire. Uh, we're really going to focus on that. We're focusing as you know, the pump station leaking for over a year and a half, corroding a main line. Uh, we are going to focus on our infrastructure at the end. You know, whether it be roads milled and paved, we're going to spend this money. I also have seen grants that uh, 
have not been uh, spent. We're going to spend those monies. We're going to be proactive. We're going to continue our quality of life action task force. The NIC pool, uh, we're escalating that timeline. Um, so there's a lot of great things in store. Um, and we're just, folks are going to see their services uh, match taxes and fees, and they're going to see their streets clean, and they're going to see their streets safer. Great. Thank you so much for taking all this time and joining us on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine today. Thank you so much, Ippy, and I'm always available, and I always enjoy our time talking. Thank you. On Wednesday, February 14th, the mayor announced the new city comptroller, stating that Dylan Spring joined the administration on Monday, February 12th, and will oversee all financial reporting and accounting for the city. Mayor Mantello will be giving her State of the City address on Wednesday, February 21st, uh, 2024, at the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall. Staying on housing, Hunter Wallace of the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley spoke on the issue of breaking up the tent encampment at the city council meeting and asked for the city council to invest more in housing needs. Your name, please. Hunter Share. Thank you. So I work at the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley here in Troy. So I cover Rensselaer and Albany counties. Anyone who is under 60 calls the nearest next hotline. It's typically going to get me, if you're over 60, you're probably going to get the Office of the Aging. The vast majority of my calls in my time at New York Next have been for housing. Right here, in the interest of kind of checking my own numbers here, I've got a list of uh, New York Next calls that I received from individuals who are living in Troy and meet the HUD definition of unstably housed, homeless, or imminently homeless. This is from May of 2023 to January of 2024. There are no repeats, and these are not all representative of single individuals. Some of these are families. The vast majority of these people are either already homeless, have been evicted under dubious circumstances, and are imminently homeless, have nowhere else to go, or are individuals who are living on fixed incomes, we're talking social security and stability and stuff like that. They've worked all their lives, they are retired or unable to work, and they cannot afford to live anywhere in Troy. We're talking even some of the Troy Housing Authority properties. They, they struggle to make ends meet. They're calling me asking for SNAP applications, the keep applications, and for ideas of other places that they can live. There's 35 of them here. The vast majority of the reasoning, we've got uh, domestic violence. We've got a lot of affordability, affordability calls, some uh, dubious rent increases. And a couple of people have called me because they call code when their landlord didn't do anything about their crappy circumstances, and then they were coded out of their apartment without anywhere else to go, no assistance from anyone other than me from their apartment out on the street. When stuff like what happened last week happens, and I'm waiting in line at DSS trying to help somebody get some emergency housing, and I see that encampment of on Prospect Park get taken down, it's disgusting. I don't know how many people here in this room had anything to do with it, but they should be ashamed of themselves. I don't know how they sleep at night. I have a nice warm place to go home to when I go home at night, and I have a hard time sleeping because I talk to these people all day. It seems like there is little to no interest in making a place where people can actually live and work 
and survive comfortably without having to go out into these early cloud sidewalks to wait in line for food distribution. So I would ask that all of y'all here seriously consider making some changes here at Troy that would better serve the folks that I am trying to serve every day. Literally anything that's going to help tenants and protect tenants rather than pay our landlords, a lot of which, and to treat a lot of the homeless people that we see around here who are part of our community and who are our neighbors as human beings, rather than treating them like trash, stealing their private property, destroying their private property, and leaving them with no other recourse but to exist in the exact same conditions they were in, but without their stuff. That was Hunter Wallace of the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley speaking at the Troy City uh, Council meeting on about housing needs. If the assistance Hunter provides through New York Connect sounds like it can help you, there is a 1-800 number, 1-800-342-9871, that you can call and be connected to the local office that can best assist you. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Vinny Damopolito. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine of the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at themediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry spoke to Sean Collins, area Troy Area Labor Council President and Labor Organizer for Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, about the highs and lows of the labor movement in 2023 and what's ahead for 2024. This is part one of that discussion. Yeah, this is uh, Willie Terry, your Roaming Labor Correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk Magazine. And today I have as my guest... Sean Collins on the line, who's a president of the Troy Area Labor Council. And how you doing, Sean? I'm good, Rick. So, Sean, before we I get actually some of the, uh, you know, the pertinent questions that I want to ask you, I just want to, why don't you tell our audience something about you and what's the Troy Area Labor Council? Yes, the uh, the Troy Area Labor Council is one of the uh, oldest uh, central labor councils in the country. We or rather, our our affiliated local unions represent about uh, thirteen to fifteen thousand fifteen thousand members uh, across Rensselaer County, um, and are affiliated with the Capital District Area Labor Federation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been the president now for about a year, and I've been a delegate to the council representing my local union, SEIU. Uh, for about uh, 10 years now. And what's the SEIU again? Yes, the uh, SEIU is the Service Employers International Union. It's uh, uh, got 2.3 million members across the, uh, uh, excuse me, across the United States and Canada and Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And uh, our local, local 200 United represents about like 
14,000 members across upstate New York. And you're one of the main organizers in this area? I am one of our union representatives here mm -hmm. in the Capital District in Hudson Valley. Mm -hmm. um, we have a few other uh, representatives and staff here in the Capital District. Um, and we represent on this side of the state, oh gosh, maybe probably, let's say like three to 4,000 members uh, in higher education and the public sector and uh, human services. We're like a, a month into, well, almost two months into uh, 2024. But uh, what I want to do is get some of your thoughts on the highs and lows of the labor movement that happened in 2023. What are some of the, what were some of the biggest challenges that faced uh, the labor movement in 2023? You know, I mean, I think the, the, the challenges are you know, the same challenges that we've faced uh, mm -hmm. for years, decades now. Um, we still are working under, you know, a, a very antiquated uh, uh, set of labor laws that um, you know, basically allow employers to violate the letter of the law uh, with impunity, um, which acts as a barrier to organizing. It also makes first contract negotiations um, very challenging and um, and, and it could be very challenging to reach a first contract with your with your employer. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that the, that, that the failure to uh, you know see any labor law reform here in the past few decades has been you know continues to be a, a barrier to organizing. Um, but I mean, that being said, I mean, last year we did see uh, an increase in the number of workers represented by labor unions. It, it doesn't show because labor union density nationwide declined because more more workers entered the workforce, right? But in terms of, you know, members represented, you know, workers rather represented by a union, we, we saw an increase, seen an actual increase, you know, you know, not being in the red in a long time. So that's super positive. Um, you know, I think uh, it, it sort of has fallen off the radar uh, to an extent, but Starbucks workers continue to organize mm -hmm. um, in huge numbers at stores across the country. I was just reading some data, actually, but there was like nearly like 500, nearly 500 Starbucks stores attempted to organize, filed for a union election. Somewhere between like 350 and 400 of them actually won their elections, representing like 9,500, you know, Starbucks workers across the country. I mean, back back when this organizing drive started, uh, you know, in, in 2021, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there was zero Starbucks workers uh, represented by a union. Um, and um, uh, now it's like, you know, it's increased by nearly 10,000. I mean, that's, that's massive. Um, but those the barriers to, like I mentioned before, with labor law really, you know, hindered the, the you know, their ability to reach a contract. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously Starbucks has, you know, wantonly like broken the law um, with impunity. So that's been really frustrating to, to see. But, you know, at the same point, very exciting. And then I think it goes to that saying that like last year, I mean, was probably one of the most significant years of strike action that we've seen uh, in recent memory. I mean, all three, all three of the of the auto manufacturers, you know, Ford, uh, Stellantis uh, and uh, um, General Motors uh, went on strike last year for an extended period of time. Um, SAG-AFTRA went on strike with the work writers go for the first time since like the 80s. Uh, film production, TV production. Um, was shut down 
in in Hollywood and across the country for months. Huge. And we haven't seen anything like that. And, and going into this year, I mean, it seems very possible that Hollywood production could again be interrupted. The Teamsters are, are getting ready to go into negotiations. IATSE, the International Association of Theatrical Stagehand Employees, are also getting ready to start their negotiations with the, the film producers. And we could, you know, we could very likely see, you know, the same issues come to the forefront there. Um, so I, I think the the, the, the strike uh, strike wave, strike revival, um, was significant. I mean, it, it doesn't really match other periods of American labor history, but it is still that we've been like the strike waves of the uh, you know the early 1900s and 19 you know 1930s that brought us the National Labor Relations Act. It's not, it doesn't match that. But I mean, it is very significant, um, uh, and uh, I think it seems like there's you know more of that to come for sure. Just a final point on this is that like what the auto workers have done to pivot from that strike, that historic strike at the big three, is just to use it as the launching pad for organizing at all of the foreign auto manufacturers that you know have plants here and in, in, in mostly in the American South, right? Um, so Hyundai, uh, Subaru. Honda, Nissan, uh, Mercedes-Benz, like going after all of the, all of the companies, all of these foreign auto manufacturers at once, um, and a massive uh, wave of auto worker organizing. That I, I think that you know comparisons and parallels can be drawn to what we saw in the 30s and 40s when the big three were first organized. Uh, probably earlier than that, my my, my time. But like it, that's huge. I mean, that's significant. I think was it Hyundai or Honda? One of them. Uh, or maybe it was Volkswagen. One of them announced that they had crossed the 50% threshold in terms of support. Huge. So I, I think that we we we'll see more that that's what's to come. Um, and I think it's built on the bedrock of like an incredible year of organizing and labor action and and strikes that took place in 2023. Mm -hmm. So so uh, would you say that 2023 was one of the busiest year in the labor movement? In recent memory, recent I would definitely say that. Mm -hmm. And you had you you went into some of the. Uh, things that I want to ask you about upcoming stuff, and, and uh, I don't know if you have, may have other ideas, but what are your thoughts on what's ahead for the labor movement in 2024, uh, and maybe in particular the capital region? You know, in terms nationally, I mean, I think it means that, like, you know, we, yeah, like, I, I think we're in terms of, like, collective bargaining and, and big contract fights that are coming up, I mean, uh, IOTSE and, uh, and, and Teamsters in, in California and across, the, you know, and across the film industry, that that's going to be huge. Like I think that that is going to be significant. I mean, that is going to be, you know, building on the gains that were won in the writers' strike and the and the actors' strike, um, and, and really challenging the fundamentals of like Hollywood um, and how they extract the fruits of their labor from uh, the film, you know, the producers. I mean, it's, that's going to be huge, and and uh, and and potentially them going on strike after being out of work because the rest of the industry was shut down for months. I mean, it is a testament to the stakes, you know, <laughs> of of the fight that they're in. Is that they're willing to potentially forego a loss of even more income, potential income, to win gains at the bargaining table after a, a very hard year. So that that's huge, you know, in terms of like. Organizing, uh, you know, like I was talking about, I think the, the auto worker organizing in the South is, is huge. Restlessness of, of Sean Fain and, and the, UA, the new UAW leadership, um, to, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge undertaking. 
Um, but the, the, they're, they're, you know, they're cap, you know, cap, you know, whatever I'm trying to say, they're trying to, you know, build on what the huge gains they, they made in their, in their strike last year and in their negotiations last year. Um, it's, it's, it's how, it's how work we're organizing, you know, that serves as the foundation for the auto workers in the first place was done. Um, and that they are, you know, learning from those lessons of history, I think it's huge. And so that's, that's those are things that I'm particularly paying attention to here. But what, what, um, what about anything in the, in the capital area? The capital district? I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, uh, the, the, it's, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I know that there is, like here in, in Troy, the, the city of Troy workers um, represented by CSEA, their contract expires. Um, at the end of this year, is my understanding. Um, there's a new mayor in City Hall um, who made a lot of promises to these workers. Um, and and uh, I, I think uh, what, what remains to be seen if she's going to deliver uh, on, those, on those promises. That was part one of Willie Terry's interview with Sean Collins. Stay tuned for part two in the near future. This was part of the Labor Bucket. Willie Terry is currently highlighting local labor leaders and the struggles they face fighting for workers' rights. And we just passed Valentine's Day, and this time last year, former intern Isabella Lafort took out the mic for the first time, headed to the streets to visit Grannies for Peace out on the streets for their Valentine's Day protest. At that time, it was really focusing on the Ukraine war. And here we go. Nice, nice. Hi. Hi, my Hi. name's Isabella. I'm with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. What are you ladies out here doing today? Uh, um, uh, arguing for peace in the Ukraine and for the for the uh, United States, specifically Biden and his and his Department of State, to advocate from his bully pulpit for uh, the parties, all the parties, to come to the table for peace negotiations. And our country is instead escalating the war, and we're pretty angry about that. Yes, yes, I can definitely see how that is very angering. Yes, yes. And you guys are called Grannies for Peace? Well, it's a, it's a consortium. I mean, we've, we've got the Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace. We've got Grannies for Peace. Um, we've got individuals that are just are, are angry about uh, the situation and all the death, plus the fact that, the, that uh, the United States and Russia both have nukes. So what's it, what's it worth to, to escalate the war? Definitely. How is this going to end? Mm -hmm. If you could say something to the youth and people of my age, like, what would you give them advice what they can do to prevent this and stop this? Get out in the street, mm -hmm. call your congressman, call uh, uh, Biden, and most importantly, just get out in the street. You, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, what, that's what we're down to now, you know? Organize and get it was, it was youth that stopped the war in Vietnam. It was a youth movement um, that built the, uh, the anti-war movement where millions came out in the streets. And, you know, if young people want to have a world in the next couple of decades, um, they, they need to make sure they do have a world. They need to fight against uh, the um, corporations and fight uh, climate change, and they have to fight against war and the possibility of nuclear war. And this is threat to everybody in the world. I agree. 
You know, the impact of uh, the war on climate change is seldom discussed, and we have yet to decline, go into a declination of greenhouse gas emissions globally. So the time is like past for that to happen, and young people, I mean, I know you, 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 you guys must be really, really busy with your lives, but you know, this is pretty important, though. This, you know, this is your future. Mm -hmm. This and this, it's a, it's the future for, for all young people, and you know, um, you just got to do something. Just got to do something to declare where you are for the future, for your future, your children's future, and so on and so forth. Definitely. Thank you so much. What's your name? Sandy Stubing. What's your name? Joe Lombardo. Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you. Hi. What's your name? Ginny O'Brien. And you're with Grannies for Peace? Yeah. Yeah. Part of this group sort of an offshoot of it. Mm -hmm. But I've just been, um, I'm just so upset about the gun violence in this country. Um, I have granddaughters that are, I have one in college now, and I'm thinking about her after what happened in Michigan, you know? And, and when is this going to stop? It's just gotten out of control with the AK-47s and just too, there's just a preponderance of guns and they're getting into the wrong hands. And you know, no, are you students then? Yes, we're students. So you, you've had to have these drills in school, right? You grew up with that. We didn't. I grew up where they were afraid of a bomb falling. We had to get under our desk. That was going to save us, you know. But you, you have been. You've seen these things over the years, and it's just wrong. And I'm, I'm, I'm just saddened that this has happened to you and to our country. Yeah, I think this is very great what you guys are doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. This is a great sight to see. There's ladies out here holding up peace signs. Some of the signs read, war is not the answer. When the power of love overcomes the power of the world, we will know peace. Jimi Hendrix is one of the signs. It's a great scene out here. There's a lot of people and a puppy. No war, no warming is another sign. So they're protesting a bunch of things out here. Gun violence, global warming, and the Ukraine war. All for the youth's future. We are 38 people, by the way. Um, my name is Mabel Leon, and I'm a Grannies for Peace. And Grannies for Peace have called for this peace demonstration today because we feel it is critical that peace talks begin for Iran. Uh, there needs to be peace talks now, and that is based on we are very aware that that there be no more civilian bombings, no more bombing of infrastructure, which is leaving people without heat, without water in the dead of winter. There is tremendous suffering for Ukrainian uh, civilians. What we do want to make very clear is Ukraine is a sovereign nation. They were invaded militarily by Russia. This is against the law. This is not an equal situation. But we need to put all our efforts into not extending the war, but to ending it and ending the misery. What would you say to the youth and what could something that we can do to help? Um, 
Well, first of all, I would start on the issue of Ukraine, being very, very worried about the youth in Ukraine who are uh, having their entire country destroyed, no schools, hospitals bombed. But to speak to the youth in this country, we need everyone to come together on this issue. We are not easily going to reach peace. We really have a very strong military framework in this society. And people point a lot to NATO. NATO is depicted as a defensive organization, but it has been involved in many offensive actions, Iraq, Afghanistan, and it also has been very involved in adding as many countries to NATO from around the periphery of Russia, which leaves Russia very threatened. However, that is not a rationalization for Russia's action. Mm -hmm. Russia needs to be held accountable. But most wars end in negotiation. And do we want to negotiate when everything has been destroyed? So that's why we're asking. And you asked specifically about youth. You know, at, in youth, it should be a time when you can enjoy. <laughs> Learn, enjoy, experiment, and look to the future. I will tell you one of the very horrible concerns around the uh, Ukraine war is the threat to nuclear disaster or nuclear accident. And I think that's very hard to wrap our minds around. I mean, when you mention it, you want to go like this, or that is impossible. But the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists just issued a statement that we have, we have never been closer to uh, a dangerous point than we are right now. So I, but I think that's a hard issue for youth to relate to. And when we're comfortable, and not everybody in this country is comfortable, we have, I just heard the number, 40,000 homeless people in Los Angeles. We have a lot of problems in this country, but there are a lot of youth that are comfortable. And you should be able to be comfortable should be able to be secure, should have health care, should have housing, you should have all these things, and an ability in youth to develop, experiment, learn. Anyway, we need the youth to get behind peace because we need everyone. Yeah. So that would this be is the call. future. Yes. Peace is our future. War is not. <laughs> Thank you Thank so much. You. This was a piece from our archives, but Grannies for Peace continue to hold monthly vigils with Albany Friends and Peace Action on the first Wednesday of every month at Capitol Park East from 12.15 p.m. until 1 p.m. And we end the show with Marshall Hildreth with Marshall Hildreth's interview with owner and operator Rachel Ann of the Capital Region's first ever cat cafe, the Pretty Paw Lounge. Rachel tells us where her passion for animal rescue stems from, what inspired her to open up the cat cafe, and how potential adopters and or those looking to get involved in animal rescue can do so responsibly. This is Marshall Hildreth for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm joined by Rachel Ann, owner and operator of the Capital Region's first ever cat cafe, the Pretty Paw Lounge, which is located on Mariahville Road in Rotterdam. 
Rachel, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing good. Thank you so much for joining me. So just to start off, this is a cat cafe. Could you just explain for people who might be unfamiliar what a cat cafe is? Yes, of course. So a cat cafe is generally partnered with a local nonprofit or rescue, and we have all local cats and kittens in the back, and they are all able to be visited. You can hang out for a half an hour or an hour, and then in the front there's a bakery, coffee shop, and gift shop where we sell locally made handmade items and baked goods, hot coffee. Awesome. Perusing your website, you seem to be like a huge animal lover, assuming to run this place you have to be. I'm curious when that started. Um, my whole life, but more specifically 10 years ago when I started volunteering um, across the town with East Greenbush Animal Lovers. And they had adoption clinics at PetSmart, so I worked there for quite some time and I really got into like the cat rescue and decided to do my own thing. And so kind of piggybacking off that, uh, I know you've traveled a lot, you uh, state that you model, you traveled the U.S. also all over the globe, uh, and that's kind of what spurred this idea. Was there a particular moment in your travels that you said, I got to do this? Um, probably seeing the Cat Cafe in Miami and how successful she was and that she was actually teaching classes and had a bottle feed, bottle feed orphan and newborn kittens. Um, it really like, you know, sparked an interest with me where I could see, you know, this growing bigger and just doing a lot of like, you know, learning and hands on for the local community. That's awesome. I never thought about like pairing an education aspect with the cafe. So that's neat. <laughs> so you were inspired by someone else uh, for people who might be inspired by you to kind of do similar businesses or just get involved with cat rescue. Uh, do you have any first timer advice uh, or anything you would like to say to them? Um, there's going to be so many roadblocks and speed bumps along the way that it's super easy to get discouraged and don't let that happen. Like if you're truly passionate about it, just keep going, keep doing it for the animals. So uh, you've mentioned that a cat cafe typically partners with an animal rescue. Uh, Kitten Angels uh, is your partner in particular. Yes. Um, I'm a little bit biased. I adopted my own very, <laughs> my very own Heidi from Kitten Angels. So awesome organization. But could you kind of tell me about uh, what goes into finding an animal rescue partner? Sure. So that's like a huge decision. Um, there is so many in this local area, and I definitely sat down with at least uh, three out of like the five major ones and discussed opportunities um, because you have to really know who you're working with, where they're sourcing their cats from, you know, that they're getting fully vetted, all their shots are up to date, negative on all the feline diseases. Um, and I had a great connection because two of my cats were adopted from Kitten Angels as well. So I already knew the ladies there and that worked out really well. Um, but definitely there's a lot of questions that you want to ask and every cat cafe I've visited in the country has found like a great close bond with like a, a rescue. So in kind of broader community news, in January, a uh, unregistered pet rescue empathy and uh, colony was shut down due to some pretty awful conditions. Uh, having been in like a similar business and in animal rescue in general, uh, do you have any advice for like prospective adopters or people getting involved in the industry uh, to kind of be wary of organizations like that? Um, definitely. And that was like super shocking for everyone, like mm. locally and in the area to hear that happen so close to home. Um, I would say definitely do your research, kind of like, you know, you said you, you have cats yourself through Kitten Angels, so do I. Like, they have a great name in the, in the capital region. 
but you know, check the website, check the references, call the vet, you know, read all the paperwork that you get. Just make sure that you know your checks are, and balances are there, that you have proof that the animals are spayed or neutered, proof that they're negative on their diseases, like ask to see the medical records because it's so easy for someone clearly to you know fool the capital region right. and it's just heartbreaking for those animals, it beyond is. devastating. It, absolutely. So in the larger picture of pet rescue, uh, what do you see the role of cat cafes and other like business models, uh, especially kind of in the future and given the circumstances with empathy? Um, I definitely see people in the area probably being a lot more cautious, doing their homework, doing a little more research. Um, and really just asking like the tough questions rather than just taking everything at face value because there's just too much margin of error with you know people just not being honest and upfront and having the animal's best interest at heart, which is why we're all in it. Right, right. Uh, and just some general questions. Uh, you said there's been, uh, I assume with any business, but especially business like this, roadblocks, uh, challenges. Uh, what was uh, the most difficult part of setting uh, the lounge up? Um, definitely New York State and getting them to understand that, you know, cats aren't going to be frolicking through the bakery and stepping on the cookies and, you know, dancing in the coffee. Um, no matter how many times you tell them that, you know, it's two separate entities, there's a completely separate room, there's double doors that, you know, they're really like freaked out about, you know, the, the hot food, the hot beverages, the baked goods. That's why everything that we have does come in prepackaged. It's uh, prepared, cooked off site. Mm -hmm. It's all food safe handling guidelines um, friendly and everything is is prepared from our local vendors, which is wonderful. We partner with some great caterers and bakers. But, you know, just getting them to understand that the cats, you know, are an asset to us, their adoptions, but the bakery is completely safe and separate from that. So that, that was a big roadblock for us. <laughs> And what do you hope to see in the lounge's future? Any possible expansions or additions or you mentioned education classes with other cat cafes? Yes. Yeah, so um, right now we're actually in the middle of working on a little bit of a build out with our basement and we want to have um, an education center where we can have volunteers come in and work with unsocial or feral cats or kittens that might not be socialized. So we get a lot of requests for people that want to volunteer and students so that we can have like a safe space where kids can come in and, you know, help acclimate the kittens to a new environment and get, you know, friendly with the people. Awesome. I can't wait to see that. <laughs> Thank you. Anything else that uh, you would like to mention or any questions I didn't ask that you would uh, like to highlight? Um, well, we're always looking for new vendors and we have a couple of spring events coming up such as um, rummage sale and then a bake sale. So we're gonna have a lot of community involvement where people can come in and set up tables and you know, sell their wares, whether it's something crafty that they make by hand or if it's like an antique collection or something special. And where can folks find out more about the Pretty Paw Lounge? So we are on Instagram and Facebook at theprettypawlounge.com. And then we have our own website, which is just prettypawlounge.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Thank I appreciate you. it. After speaking with Rachel, I popped on over into the next room to interview some of the residents of the Pretty Paw Lounge. And they were quite opinionated. Here's what they had to say.
I hope those meows and purrs provided some levity to your day. Again, a huge thank you to Rachel for this interview. If you want to find out more on the Pretty Paw Lounge, you can go to their Facebook and Instagram at the Pretty Paw Lounge or visit their website, prettypawlounge.com, or give them a call at 518-344-6101. Thank you so much. This has been Marshall Hildreth for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And the Pretty Paw Lounge is located at 370 Mariaville Road in Rotterdam. If you're looking for pets to cuddle closer to home, the Mohawk Hudson Humane Society is full of wonderful animals looking for a home. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahicki. And I'm Vinny Damapolito. And you may not have heard it, but Vinny was over here on the soundboard getting <laughs> the sliders moving. So first time co we co-engineered today. That's right. And we also want to thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. This is a team effort after all. Thanks to EP, Willie Terry, Isabella LaForte, Marshall Hildreth, and Bria Barthel for the headlines and script support. And to Kaylin for setting up a successful show and holding things down for the past week. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent uh, donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.